Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. As always, I'm happy to have you tuning in and subscribing to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by GoDaddy.com, where you can buy your own domain name, build your own site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30%. All you have to do is go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab, and then the GoDaddy icon to save 30% today. Okay, so today's podcast, I am joined by Dr. Liam West. So Dr. West was trained at Cardiff Medical School in Wales, United Kingdom. During his first few years there, he also completed a sports science bachelor's degree to dip his toes into the waters of sports medicine. During his undergraduate studies, he set up a student society to promote, educate, and offer opportunities within sports exercise medicine to his peers both in medicine but in all areas of SEM, such as physiotherapy, sports science, etc. Through the national acclaimed success of the society, he then created similar societies across the UK before founding an overarching UK student society and later a European-wide one. These societies kicked off what is now an extremely strong and vibrant junior SEM scene in the UK. In his fourth year of his studies, he single-handedly ran his own student SEM conference, attracting some 250 delegates, and that introduced him to Dr. Karim Khan and uh, Dr. Peter Bruckner, and a role within the British Journal of Sports Medicine followed. And over the years, he has developed into becoming a senior associate editor at BJSM. After his studies finished, he completed a diploma in SEM while working full-time as a junior doctor and picked up his clinical work in horse riding in Women's Soccer Premier League and the England Under-16. In 2015, he made the switch to live in Melbourne, Australia, where he currently resides, and he has transitioned into working in Australian rules football, both at the elite and academy levels, while still working in soccer for Melbourne Victory. So he has quite a background in sports uh, and exercise medicine. And funny story, so we met... Um, a couple of months ago now in Monaco at the International Olympic Committee World Congress meeting. But before that, we were kind of emailing back and forth because we, um, I was going to be working a little bit with the British Journal of Sports Medicine to do some podcasts for them while in Monaco. Liam is the voice, one of the voices of BJSM podcast. So if you haven't checked out the BJSM podcast, I highly suggest you do that. And we actually have a lot of links to articles and podcasts in the show notes. So head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and you can get all the links for that. So we had been, aside from meeting in Monaco, previous to that, we had been emailing back and forth about uh, how we're going to break down interviewing people while at the IOC conference. And so Liam was sort of in charge of kind of the breakdown and who we were going to interview. And I had emailed him 
at the time and said, you know, just to make 100% certain, I'm going to be doing this on behalf of BJSM. Is there any specific verbiage or anything that I need to use? Because I'm used to the verbiage, obviously, on my own podcast and not BJSM's podcast. And so he wrote back and gave some ideas on on how what kind of verbiage to use and then asked if I had ever done any podcasting before. Because if not, they could certainly give me some tips, which of course, I will always take a tip on podcasting, especially from the people at BJSM, because I think they do such a great job. And so when he asked if I ever did any podcasting before, I was like, um, yeah, what? What's going on here? So I emailed back a very nice email, contrary to what he would say. Um, but I, I sent back a very nice email saying that I have in fact done about 270 podcasts, but I'm always open to the possibility of learning more. So any tips would be greatly appreciated. Um, and then once we met, at, and so for some reason in my head, I had pictured him being, I don't know, like an older doctor. Um, and so then when I met him at the IOC, I was definitely a little surprised. And and it's not that he wasn't being mean in any way by asking if I'd ever done podcasts. He just didn't know that I do, in fact, have a podcast. And now I feel like I'm having him as a guest on the podcast just to prove that the podcast exists. And of course, aside from the fact that he has a lot of knowledge to share on the front of uh, sports and exercise medicine. So... All right, getting that story out of the way. So what do we talk about? We're talking about today tools that young clinicians can use to break into sports and exercise medicine, tips for introverts preparing for networking events, which, you know, he went to a ton, I think he said something like 60 conferences in the time when he was in school, and he talks about kind of some tricks that he learned on how to get to those conferences, because it's expensive, um, and then some tips on how to network while you're there. Uh, the key element to master for buy-in with athletes, and why you should seek out communication training to supplement your clinical set, and a lot more. So I'm really happy that Dr. West came on the show, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. There's a lot of great information packed into the next, I think, 30 to 40 minutes. So uh, please enjoy this episode, everyone, and feel free to leave a comment on Twitter or on Facebook under the post for all of these uh, podcast episodes because we would love to hear your opinions and maybe what you're doing to break into the sports and exercise medicine scene. So everyone, thanks so much. Thanks to Dr. West and enjoy today's episode. Hey, Liam, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm very honored to be on the podcast. Okay, so today we're going to talk about kind of how to break into sports and exercise medicine as a younger clinician, whether that be a physio or a physician. So as we read in the bio, you're a physician and you've been, I feel like you've had quite the, the resume so far for a junior doctor. So what advice do you have for other younger clinicians to break into sports and exercise medicine? Yeah, well, thanks for the kind words. I'm not sure they're merited, but um, I think it, it, it's, it's difficult, but the advice, as you said, spans across medicine, physiotherapy, sports science, anywhere where a junior is trying to get into what I think we need to realize is quite a saturated market now. Um, we're creating a lot more people than there are opportunities. So one thing that served me well, and it's difficult to have and create, is just energy and motivation. Um, and that comes a within a belief of yourself and where you're heading. So you need the energy to be working late nights, trying to get the opportunities um, and actually putting yourself out there and making yourself visible to 
those that might hire you or those that might give you a shadowing opportunity. So I guess creating opportunities is one thing there, but it's uh, that's only one part of it. You actually need to seize them. Um, when I was at university, I guess stories I could pull out would be I'd often, um, and my friends would think it a bit crazy, but go on a coach because I had no money uh, overnight just for four hours uh, just to have a coffee with someone for half an hour and then a coach straight back to the hospital the next day. And I knew that just from that coffee, there might be the chance that an opportunity would come up. And I did that possibly way too many times, but that, that creates the opportunity, but it's up to there for you to seize them. Um, so going on with the opportunities, so look, that's energy and motivation, but how else can you get the opportunity? So I always talk to my friends who are junior, et cetera, and say that start with what's already there. So go to your medical school, your physiotherapy school, sports science, wherever it might be, your college, uh, and talk to your dean, talk to your lecturers and ask them, is there anything that's already there? Are there lectures on sports medicine? You know, anything that can be a tangent. So for the doctors or junior doctors that are listening to this, maybe it's cardiology and it's the physiological aspects of exercise with that. Just physiotherapy, it doesn't just have to be musculoskeletal. Uh, it can be neurological. It can, there's lots of things. You just got to think outside of the box. Um, and if you come up a bit stumped there and there's actually nothing at your university, well, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a perfect opportunity. Um, that's where you can create your own society. Um, so as I think you've read out in my bio, I, that's one way I first dipped my toes into sports medicine is that I set up a society myself because I was a little bit frustrated that when I did that step and I went to my dean, they basically had nothing to offer me uh, at my university. And I very much go into things saying, if it's not there, I'll just do it myself um, because I do have a lot of energy and I have to put it somewhere to stop me getting in trouble. So uh, I set up a society and you know people ask me, why do you do all of that? So look, I love providing education for other people and, and building sort of relationships for that way. But it's also, if you want to look at it selfishly, if you're arranging talks, you get the perfect way to introduce yourself to the sort of big guns within your field. Um, you know, if you email someone saying, look, I want to give you a platform to talk about your research or talk about your operations and talk about how good you are, they love it. And then you're already uh, got an easy access in there. So if there's no society, think about creating it. And I think that's really important tip. Um, and that will start to give you education. I guess we can come up to the second, but I think the biggest thing, we may as well start soon on this, is networking. Networking is key. Um, I always say that I live or die by my networking skills. Um, and just a brief mention is, and I met you, Karen, in Monaco, and I mm -hmm. think that shows that you don't just need a local network, you need an international network. I think sports and exercise medicine is a truly global uh, thing. So if you're only networking within your city, you're not doing yourself justice. Uh, and again, go back to you may not be creating those opportunities uh, and therefore you're limiting your opportunity to seize them. So how do you network? Well, there's, there's no simple thing on that. You can read as many books as you want. Uh, but I think maybe tricks that I use is get to every conference you can. Um, and you've I'm been to a lot. Yeah, I think I started, I think my first conference would have been when I was, I wasn't that old, I think I was 22, 23, and five years later I've been to about 60. I've arranged and organized about eight myself, 
Um, and they're just conferences. I've been to lots of lectures, etc. But but anyway, so what I would do at a conference, I'd turn it into a game because I'm a failed sportsman. That's why I'm going into sports medicine. So I like everything to be a game. I would ring maybe five keynote speakers. And my target was at the end of that conference, I wanted their email or some contact. Um, and I started to do that. And I thought, oh, I'm completing this game too easy. How can I make it harder? So what I would do is I would wait until that big name, that Karen Litzy, who I really wanted to talk to, I'd wait. Yeah, maybe not. But I was, yeah. I'd wait until they were talking to maybe two or three of their friends. And then I'd go in and introduce myself because then I get three or four contacts. Um, and then the other thing I would do is I'd probably say something, maybe not controversial, but something that I knew would stick in their mind so that when I emailed them later that evening, because I get their business cards, I would mention it uh, in there. And then maybe three, four, five, even a months or maybe even a year down the line, they would, uh, oh, sorry, I would email them back asking for an opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say, oh, remember we met at such and such a conference, see below. They'll remember that stupid thing you've said. And then you've put yourself above everyone else because lots of people email these, these individuals and you know they're swamped with requests. So if you can try and put yourself in front of everyone else, you know, it's a good thing. Um, I think... The juniors nowadays need to embrace the environment that we live in. So Twitter, social media, that's an important way of networking now. Um, I've used it bits, um, uh, but I, I, I'll come on to about being professional. But you can certainly talk to people, use the hashtag of a conference before you go, find out who's going, arrange a coffee, go from there. I've done that. Um, I was much better, I think, when I was younger. Um, maybe I'm getting a bit old. But um, yeah, I think that's really good. Um, then think about you don't just want to have a social media presence on Twitter, maybe LinkedIn. That's more of a static site, but you can sort of list what you're doing, where you want to go. And it's an easy way of um, connecting with people. I think for juniors, when I talk to junior people about this, I always say, be careful, as I do with my athletes, be very careful on social media. Um, just try and think before you post something is, in 10 years, 15 years time, when you're going for that interview for your dream job for, for you New Yorkers, maybe it's with the Yankees, maybe it's out in the NFL, something like that, you know, would you be happy for them to print that tweet and put it on the table in front of you? You know, that, that's something that you've really got to be careful with. Um, and if you're thinking, maybe just don't tweet it. Um, everything is saved. The internet is a good thing and it can be a bad thing. And as I think you've experienced, Karen, there could be people out there that are just looking for confrontation, the Twitter trolls. So don't get involved in that. Um, I guess that these are a few things I could go on forever. I may, I may as well carry on. So if you're going to conferences, you know, get there anywhere you can. So I would say of those Neil 60 conferences I've gone to, I think I've paid for about four or five. Um, so, so, so what, what is the trick on that? Because oftentimes students and sort of junior, especially I'm a physiotherapist, so junior physiotherapist, one of the biggest problems they have is cash. You know, they've got oh, yeah, loans sure. out the wazoo and then they all, they, I mean, everybody wants to go to a lot of these conferences, but they don't have the cash to do it. So what sort of tips do you have? How have you gone to these conferences and not had to pay. I would like to know how to go to a conference and not have to pay. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well, look, it's difficult. Um, you have to put yourself out there and you have to be willing that, you know, maybe it'll only be on the third time you ask and stuff. So, for instance, when I was younger, I used to offer to pack bags. 
So I would pack delegate bags um, and I and that would be in return for free admission. I would be a model, um, not face wise, just be body, wear some shorts, let them examine me. I've cleaned floors. I've served drinks. I've held microphones. Uh, another easy way, I mean, easy in inverted commas, is that you can organize it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a yeah, whole... Yeah, so easy. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I organized my first one when I was in my third or fourth year at medical school, and I did it on my own. And that was that was an enlightening... You learn a lot. It's a good thing. And that's useful. And then the only the other thing is, um, I'm quite lucky in the fact that I work for the British Journal of Sports Medicine, which some of you may have listened to. And so I can use that and go there and work at a conference like we both did in Monaco, Karen, mm-hmm. where you offer to do the social media for them for free. So it's difficult. You can't take much in education wise, but it's the networking opportunity that you can get. So it's so important. Um, so I think just offer your services. Um, and do stuff like that you'll find uh the juniors that are listening and and if you're a senior tell your tell your junior colleagues that you know if you set up a society and then you offer to say if you give me a free ticket i will bring 10 students along if you give me a cheap student student price so i worked really hard with pretty much all the professional conferences in the uk when i sat on all of the different faculty and the association panels and committee boards to try and keep street education very affordable uh, if not free, because I think you'll find that when you go to a conference and there's a large student body there, all of the people that normally just see the same faces, uh, faces apologies, they're very invigorating. They love it. Um, and that's important. And I guess there, actually, to go to it, there's network within your peer group. I've talked a lot about looking up the ladder and trying to do that. But remember who you're going to work with in 20 years time. So if you're one of those people that has, you know, only will open the door for those above them and let it swing and hit in the face of your colleagues at the moment, you know, in 20 years time, you're going to find that you're not in a very nice working environment. Mm-hmm. Um, some things I probably haven't spoke about and it's, I, I, look, I'm very passionate about this. As you can tell, I could go through it for getting students involved. And I did a lot of things is you have to remember that people don't owe you the experience. Um, I think I've met a lot of people now that tell me they're interested in sports medicine. And I think they're waiting for things to, to fall into their lap. And it's very easy within medicine. Um, and I'm sure the same with physiotherapy, et cetera. But in medicine, we get placements during medical school in cardiology, respiratory, geriatrics, et cetera. But there's not really a sports medicine placement. So it's not just going to come to you during your training. You've got to go out there um, and do it. And look, people are time poor. We all know that. It might just be a perception, but certainly they're time poor. So you have to go to them offering something. At the very beginning, I said energy and motivation. People love that. If, if that's all you can offer, that's probably all that I can ever offer, but that's great. But maybe you can try and be a bit more strategic. Say you'll help them with an audit, a little bit of research. Cry, I've been to football camps and I, the, the help I did was I was a, I collected balls, you know, when they missed shooting um, and things like that. So there's that. And then the, maybe you can look further outside the box and say, can I actually add some value? So... Um, I mean, I've lectured on this with Kareem, near Kareem Khan, and what he always says is, his example is, if you like cricket, you know that there's going to be finger injuries and there's going to be back injuries, pars, uh, defects, or stress fractures. Now, learn about them so that when you're having conversations about it, you're just not trying to suck everything in a sponge. Maybe you can actually say, did you see that research paper two months ago that said X, Y, and Z? And you learn about the anatomy of the finger. You learn about the different splint in the need for a mallet or a swan neck deformity or boutonniere, et cetera, et cetera. 
so you can you know add stuff and you've got to make sure and I, this goes back to my competitive nature that you're maybe better at certain things that you want to go to, into than your colleagues so I always knew that I wanted to come out of medical school with really good hands-on musculoskeletal skills because we don't get taught them so you need to learn to touch people in a legal way um patients will go with there uh because you need to be the best at that and it's not just being good enough to be better than everyone else you need to be the best that you can be at that um and i do think that's important so that when you get these opportunities you you know you, you actually add something people say look he really wants to do this and they'll offer you more opportunities and the idea of those opportunities is that you're surrounding yourself with people that are better than you and more skilled than you mm -hmm. you know don't go back always go back into an environment where you're the best because you're not challenging yourself you know you need to yeah. get out of your comfort zone it and gets that, really that boring that's boring oh, yeah for sure for sure yeah. I mean I wouldn't know I'm always out of my depth but I think you do need to get out of your comfort zone and and one ways that I do that is I try and I try and find the time but I try and read about stuff as well because it doesn't, you know, you're not always going to have those opportunities, but I have opportunities to read whenever I want on planes, et cetera. So read interesting books, ones that teach you how to network, that teach you how to change behavior, um, et cetera. So one book I would tell all juniors they have to read is Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard by some American authors called Dan and Chip Heath. Now, if that's the only book you read, I think it will help you so much with behavior change, but also it it's just got so many parallels in sports medicine you can use. I mean, I should stop talking, but let's say my last tip or until I keep going is for, for a junior. And, and I was told this is you're there to work. Do not become a fan. So you have to let the coaches coach. That's what they're there for. You know, if, if you were there to coach, you'd be a coach. You're there to protect the players, the athletes from themselves because they all want to play or they wouldn't be doing it and to protect them from the coaches. You know, if you become a fan, and for instance, I support Manchester United. If I became the Manchester United doctor and I was really invested in the team winning, I mean, you have to be to a certain extent, but that might compromise my return to play decisions. Maybe I'll be putting people back before they're ready. And in 10 years time, when they come back to me and say, you didn't manage me right, either because of a concussion or my knee and I went on and got an ACL, you know, why did you do that? And all I can say is I really wanted to win. Well, you're not really doing them a justice. Um, but maybe the biggest thing for athletes, and maybe this is something we could come on to Karen is it's difficult when you're a youngster, um, getting the athletes to be on your side because, mm -hmm. you know, who are you? You know, I started looking after teams when I was, oh, let's work this out, 24, 25, et cetera. And I think the biggest thing I tell people is like athletes don't really care how much you know until they know that you care. So I spent a lot of time, so I've moved into Australian rules football this year and I, I don't know the sport. So I spent a lot of time in the preseason just going in and being amongst the playing group, asking how they are, how the parents are, you know, how they perform and telling them, going out and watching them train saying, oh, you're looking like you're doing really well. You know, and once they know that you're going to be there in the rain, in the sunshine, in the hail, et cetera, and that you actually care about their well-being, but also, you know, how they how they feel as a person that's the well-being sorry but also how they perform etc i think that's when you start to see that you can be an effective part of a team i'll try and be quiet for a bit no no, no that's no it's all great so i think one thing that 
I and there's sirens behind me, so I apologize to everyone listening to this. But I'm in New York, and this is the way it goes. Um, so I think one thing that circling back to you know going to conferences and networking and putting yourself out there. So you're very much an extrovert, at least from what I can tell. <laughs> Maybe. Or, I mean, from what I saw in Monaco. Um, <laughs> so I guess the question is: is what about those new doctors or let's say students who? aren't quite as comfortable just popping in and, and introducing yourself when, especially when someone's, like you said, talking to two other people, which I think is great, and that's something I have no problem doing. But oftentimes people have, if you're a little more introverted and or perhaps you don't know a lot of people at these conferences, you know, how can you kind of assert yourself and meet more people? Okay, uh, two things. Have, uh, so one of my directors of football when I used to play uh, professional football used to say if you start well you finish well so it was a case of this is how I tell my more yeah maybe I'm an extrovert introverted friends is if you have an opening blog that you can say in your sleep you will be less nervous and opening two or three sentences um, that you think will work for you you know it might sound a bit corny but you can practice those things so that as long as you're not stuck high high instinct and that's fine if you do but if you can try and, you know, it's like an interview. If you prepare well, you'll be okay, you'll do better. And the other thing I say to people is find a common ground. And that common ground is normally a coffee break or lunch because you'll both be eating. If you can't think of something to say, shove some food in your mouth and just say, oh, one second. And it gives you a little bit of thinking time. People naturally bond over coffee. Um, those are two really good scenarios. Um, it might be that you really, really don't like talking to people. So, you know even just after an email. So what you do is you note down, over an email, sorry. Uh, if you note down one or two things they said in their talk, you can prove in a way that you're in the room, email them afterwards and say, dear, hey, Karen, I thought it was a really good talk you gave on such and such. I really like these learning points. Um, you know, I'd love to maybe catch up at some time or have a you know, chat on the phone. Some people find talking on the phone slightly easier and that can be a way. So you find your medium. You don't have to do... I guess what I said um, earlier about meeting them face to face. I mean, at some point you may have to, mm -hmm. um, but it's fine what you're comfortable with. And maybe some of those mediums or areas to talk are easier like that. Um, but, you know, I still think that getting to the conference, even if you don't talk to people networking that way, you can talk about what they said. Maybe afterwards offer to write a blog on what mm -hmm. they said. Yeah, you know, I've done that. Yeah, exactly. Submit it to yeah. BDSM, etc. Because then you're getting, you know, if I was writing on something that you spoke about, I'm getting you on side. I'm giving you free publicity and getting out your message. Okay, so mm -hmm. that's win-win for everyone. You're getting your name out there. You're networking, and so networking is a dirty, dirty word, I guess, to some people. But you know, it's it's you could call it relationship building, mm -hmm. um, or just having fun. Like it's it, it's fun, you know. And and that's the other thing is. You know, networking can turn an introvert into someone who's super confident. And that's great. You're developing yourself. You may never want to go into sports medicine. And that's another important thing I say to people is I went into medical school wanting to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then I realized, um, I, I guess I didn't really want to cut people up and I don't have anger issues. And I just felt that when I was 50 years old, I wanted something that gets me out of bed. And I found it in sports medicine. It's the thing that gets me up early and keeps me up late at night. So I did a lot of experience in orthopedic surgery, um, 
just to prove to myself I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that might, that might be the same with some juniors saying, you know, I'm going to do experience in sports med because I'm thinking about it. And if you come out saying, no, this isn't for me, I don't like, you know, the, the random hours working every weekend, et cetera, et cetera, if you're going to do sports teams or if you're in a clinic, I don't like this sort of stuff. Um, well, at least that's, you know, stop you doing 10 years down the track later on where you fall into a pathway you think you can't get out of because right. you started to have kids, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that's valuable insight. You know, that's kind of learning really what you want to do and what you're passionate about. And I think one other thing I'd just like to add, and I've heard this, you know, from you, I've heard it from uh, other sports medicine professionals, is that there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into wanting to be, whether it be a team doctor or whether it be a team physio or a strength and conditioning coach and, you know, major league baseball or soccer or what have you, that there's sacrifice that goes into that, both monetary sacrifice, time sacrifices, and you have to be okay with that and know that going in. Would you agree? Yeah, and relationship sacrifices. So I think Mm -hmm. I could give you stories on each of those. And I mean, I won't bore you, but like I've spent, as a student, uh, I essentially put a lot, I used to go to the hospital to eat, uh, have my breakfast there, lunch, and bring something home because I was spending all my money on traveling to things uh, and getting to network, et cetera. And, you know, maybe it's paying off now. But, yeah, so monetary, definitely. You know, relationships, like if you're working for three different teams and you're at four training sessions in a midweek and you're covering games Saturday and Sunday, sometimes you just can't say, do things. And people, you know, it, it's difficult. You got it. It's difficult to find that work-life balance. And if you if you love your work, it doesn't become work. It becomes a hobby. It becomes something you're passionate about, so you want to do it. So, yeah, certainly that's interesting. Time-wise, yeah, it's difficult. And I've missed some of my family's birthdays because I've been working at things, um, and also because medicine robs you of the soul and you have to do nights. <laughs> but um, that's okay. So look, it's difficult, but you know. I wouldn't change it. So I feel extremely privileged to work in something I love. I speak to too many of my friends that I grew up with at school and and they really don't like their job. They live for Friday evening and dread Monday. And so I feel lucky. Like currently I work six or seven days a week minimum. You know, it'd be lovely if there was nine days in a week. I was going to say there's only seven. So I don't know how many more you can do. Yeah. you, You nearly cut me off before that. But look, that, yeah, it's, look, I love it. I think if people get involved in it and they do like it it's not an issue but you just have to go in with your your eyes wide open and if you're going into it certainly in the UK where I'm from I'm now in Melbourne it's pretty much the same if you're going into it because you think it's going to give you lots of money and glamour really think again uh because if you're the the person that wants to drive that Porsche etc do orthopedic surgery or, or plastics or something like that if it's medicine or you know run a business but you know, if you're someone that wants to truly love uh, what they do and if you love sport and you want to be involved in the success and, you know, those special moments, you want to work at the 100 meter final uh, of the Olympics or whatever, you know, this is this is a way in. It, but that's not shouldn't be the only reason. Like I actually the sports part of it is what, 10 percent maximum. It's working in the clinic. It's getting the 70 year old lady back to what she wants to do, walking two kilometers um you know, just or two miles just to go and see her granddaughter or something like that. And it's getting them back. You know, that is just very empowering, you know, and it's a beautiful speciality where unlike other stuff that's completely disease focused, sometimes we can use exercise medicine as a preventative and treatment tool and people actually want to get better. Nobody goes to a physiotherapy clinic and says, 
oh, I just want 10 weeks off work, don't do anything for me, uh, or just put yeah. me on the tablet. No, that so, doesn't, that rarely happens. It's a refresh, yeah, not for the money that you charge, Karen. So it's a, you know, it, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And look, people buy into their own health with that. It's, I don't know, it's very, very good. Yeah, I, I agree. And now, Earlier, you had mentioned, kind of skimmed over something, but I want to kind of go back to that. And that is when you are a young doctor, young physio, I mean, I experienced this when I first graduated. People would ask me, do you have to go to school for this stuff? And I would say, well, yeah, I've, 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 I went to school. And then I would get, no, 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 not high school, dear, college. Then I would say, <laughs> no, no, I did. I went to five years of college. You know, I'm, I swear, like, I am qualified. I can... I can certainly treat you, but I was working in a hospital setting at the time. When you're working with athletes and they're, this is their life, I think there's a little bit of a different perspective there. So how do you get buy-in with the athletes when you're a young clinician? Uh, it's a great question, um, and I could see where they asked you that, Karen, because you have that horrible thing of youthfulness about you. If no one's seen the picture on your uh, podcast info please look at that it's a lot of maybe it's a lot of paint and workshop but editing anyway so as, as a youth I mean what have I done well I think the most important thing for me is having a mentor um so the reason I say that is so I might be dealing with a, a pretty complicated case so let's go with uh, a musculoskeletal case for some uh for starters so it's something that's outside of my uh, knowledge base and it's also outside of my experiential practice. Okay. So I've not seen it before and I don't know much about it. So I'd just be honest. Honesty is really powerful with an athlete and say, look, we, we will use the simple uh, procedures we would for any injury. Um, you know, whether that be protect it, optimally load, ice, compress, elevate, etc. Um, but this is what I think we're going to do. But as you know, I have a mentor. So and I'll talk to them. So for me, I've started in a completely new sport, Australian rules football, which has no parallels in the in England. And so obviously to have an English doctor come into there, people are always going to be very skeptical. But so I always say to them, look, I've, I've got a mentor and he's actually the head doctor for one of the best teams in the country. And so that gives me a little bit of leeway and, and, and they believe in. So I say, look, we'll do the simple things. We'll do them right. Uh, in the meantime, I'll talk to my mentor, I'll give him the plan that I'm saying, and, and I'll, maybe I'll let him manipulate it. Do you allow me to do that? Do I have your consent? And so I think the mentor is important. And further afield than that, the mentor is just so key to a junior physiotherapist, doctor, etc. You have to get someone that you're comfortable with them giving you positive and negative criticism and developing you as a human, but also as a clinician or healthcare provider like that's that is second only behind networking so it's about being honest with the athlete for me i actually took up the sport so i am playing australian rules which is which is a very full contact sport it's difficult to take up when you're 28 but like that gets me a lot of reps so for uh people in the in america if you start to work in uh, lacrosse and you've never done it why don't you do that i trained with the boys during the preseason and you know they saw a lot I'm really getting stuck in like and it's a difficult boundary you need to create a friendship and you're easier to do that because you've lived the life that these athletes are often living if you're 60 70 years old a physician you've got the experience behind you but you don't know much about what they're going through with college school relationships and and how that is all kept in society now so use that as a strength you know talk to them about stuff you know 
understand what they're going through. So it's develop a relationship with them, have a mentor, and then communication. You live or die by communication. I've had communication training uh, through my degree. And if you haven't, I think it is really useful for you. Um, so what so, do you mean by communication training? So I was very lucky at medical school. We were taught. Um, so, for instance, the first things we were talking about is uh, posture. How you, you know, if you're leaning forward, leaning back, what does that mean to someone mirroring, mirroring people? You do it naturally, but if you know a little bit about it, you can p- make people feel more at ease. So if I'm talking about a difficult scenario, one of my players comes in and says, look, I'm having a difficult time with a girlfriend, with health, with etc. And if I'm cross-armed, not really looking at them, they're not going to open up. But if you o- sort of open your body, look in their eyes, things like that, mirror what they do. So if they grab their hands together, do that. It just makes them feel more comfortable. It's about active listening. So don't just listen, nod your head, you know, sometimes say, mm, yeah, and just reaffirm that you're listening. Um, things like repeating what they've just said so that they know that you're giving them a synopsis, you've taken it in and then that gives you a chance to think about what your question's going to be. So there's lots of things that you can learn such as that. I'm not the best to tell your listeners about that, but look, it's important. It's very much helped me. I was lucky that I've worked in um, oncology, so cancer and hematology, and I've had to do breaking bad news and you very much get better quickly um, if, if you're talking about lifespan and things like that with people, like you have to get good. So I've been quite lucky, but you can go out there and, and do it. And the other thing is you can ask for feedback. So I ask my coaches um, exactly how am I doing? How can I improve? Because I lead committee meetings where I say who's fit and who isn't fit to play, etc. And I want to know, you know, what are people saying about me? How can I improve? And, you know, you have to be open to the fact that if you ask that question, people might say bad things that might potentially hurt your feelings if you're not ready for it. Um, so don't ask if you're not willing to change. But, you know, I think that's important. Uh, probably to go all the way 360, actually come and answer your question. Um, how, how do I get as a young clinician? You, you need to know your stuff as well. So, you know, know the sport, really know the sport. So if you're going into, just try and get an American perspective, if you're going into NFL and you don't know the difference between a defensive man and a linebacker and exactly what biomechanically they need to get back to or... You know, if they start to talk to you about how they got injured and they're talking about tactical play or movements and you don't really know what's going on, you will lose them straight away. So I've read a book on Australian rules football. I watch a lot of it to try and learn. And if you can just use the language, the communication skills there, you know, that makes people more on side. Um, and then the other thing is disorganize, disorganization as a youngster, because you don't have the experience, can really, I guess, kill your practice mm. to be a bit it can ruin your reputation really so create protocols so whether that be a protocol of how you're going to approach talking to people you know are you going to say this is what the presenting symptoms are this is what you've got this is a differential diagnosis or maybe it's a protocol for you know how do we treat hamstring injuries how am i going to manage concussions luckily a lot of these protocols are out there but if you have one you're less likely to miss stuff you look organized to the player professional you know, you've got that social element, you've trained, et cetera. So you build on different fronts. Um, and at the end of the day, you need to be there. So if you're there at trainings and you're there, you know, during wet, cold, warm conditions, people will start to know that you're invested in them as an athlete and they will trust you. Yeah. So, and they're more likely to open up to you. So 
you know, before we kind of went on air, we were talking about, you know, a difficult scenario that you have had. And I think it was someone with a concussion and they just weren't kind of giving you the full story. And so yeah. again, if you're not, and we'll talk about that in a second, but I think it's an example of having to have the trust of, of the athlete or the player for them to feel comfortable enough to open up to you. Um, and cause you need to use that along with your clinical skills and your observational skills and your reasoning skills in order to, to make the right, uh, plan for that patient, the right plan of care, athlete, whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. So, um, so when I was in medical school, uh, everybody used to go on about how important taking a history is. So they would say 90% of your diagnosis or differential diagnosis is based on history taking. Now you can take as good a history as you want, but if an athlete doesn't trust you, they're not going to tell you. So you're asking the right questions. You're just not getting the right answers. So, you know, I think that is pretty much framing how important it is. Uh, you mentioned the concussion case. Um, maybe uh, I'll just quickly go over it. Essentially one of my athletes took a very heavy knock. Um, I did the on field and then I took him off the field to do the SCAT, the sports concussion assessment tool. And he was okay on that. He reported low symptoms. Um, and it's very important that people know that's not a pass or fail thing. That's just to help you do a concussion assessment. At the end of the day, if you've got a gut feeling that they're not right, then they're not right. So unfortunately, I couldn't see the incident because uh, an Aussie field is, is maybe over 100 meters away. But I went over to him uh, and, I, and I saw him. So we did all these tests. I let him play on. And then during the week, I was still doing all of these tests, seeing him pretty much daily. And he was telling me he felt fine, et cetera. And all of his balance, memory, coordination, et cetera, was okay. And then he played the following week, and possibly played the worst game he's ever played in his entire history and was contributing to the fact of why we lost. So there's, there's a bit of a hoo-ha in the club about it, the coach talking to me. And, and in the end, the athlete sort of revealed that, yeah, he was really not right. And I'm pretty sure most of your listeners will have had these experiences. And oh, absolutely. So, yeah. And so maybe it was a case that, you know, I hadn't developed a relationship enough with him. He says it's because, you know, he just thought he could pull through it. Um, which comes on to the fact that you need to edu you're a source of education, whether you're a physio, sports science, doctor, whatever, that you need to educate your players. Um, and I guess we can come on to concussion education in a second, what I do. But I think the difficult scenario is there. So what, what have I done as a junior? I've spoken to my mentor about it, got some tips. I've spoken to the coach and said in future, you know, how, how, should, we, how should we deal with this sort of stuff? So open to criticism. Um, and then you go and talk to the player. And I was very honest with him. And I just said, look, you know, you've, you know, clean slate between you and I, but you've let yourself down. You've let your teammates down um, because you weren't honest with me. Um, and that's, in, that's, that's important. And I guess let's come on to the education now. So when I did a talk to my players at the start of the season, I think with concussion, um, and, and many of your listeners, I believe, will have to do this and talk to their players before the start of the season with concussion. I don't labor the fact that it's bad for their you know, heads and things. They know that there's, especially in America, there's so much information and, and media about second impact syndrome, if that exists, um, and, and other such things. So the way I talk about it and the way I did speak about it is statistically, you're 3.4 times more likely to have an injury if you're playing with a concussion. So I always say that you're more likely to get an injury such as an ACL or a hamstring, something you can't hide from. You can't hide it from the medical staff and you will be out for a significant point of time. 
And then the other thing I did is I got them, I said, look around the room, look all your teammates in the eyes. And I said, if, if you can say to them right now that you are too selfish to come off because you don't think that your teammates are good enough and you miss that tackle, you mess up that pass and you lose the game because you had too much pride to just come and get an assess for a concussion, etc. You know, if you're willing to let down all your teammates and yourself, that's a decision you have to make. So you have to get these athletes to buy into the responsibility of themselves with concussion. I'm there to protect their health, but I can only do it with their buy-in. Um, so it's a difficult one, but it's interesting. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important to kind of lay out what your agenda is in the beginning. You know, and again, this kind of goes back to getting the buy-in, getting the trust, especially when you're young or if you look younger. Um, being able to set out a more, I don't want to say author, authoritative, but you kind of have to have your players look on, look at you as an authority at what you do. So, yeah, so kind of setting the stage early is really important. And it makes me wonder how many times I haven't done that with patients. Oh, uh, so many times. And this, this isn't Crazy. just in a yeah, sporting context. It's within a yeah. clinic. So it's setting... Uh, your standards, but maybe within a team. The another thing is for a junior, it's very important to work out, especially if you start getting a position that's paid. Who do you re who are you responsible, or who do you report to? So, is it the chief executive that pays your bills? Is it the coach who picks the team, or is it the players and the confidentiality that's sort of within all of that? So, look, it's difficult, and within a clinic, you know. You're trying to get them better, but what are the boundaries? How far will you go? You're not going to call them up and chase them to make sure they're doing things. So they, they have to invest in their own health as well. Yeah, and you have to be able to get them to have that buy-in. Um, okay, so we're kind of coming to the end of the, of the uh, podcast. But before we end, I always, I've been asking everyone kind of the same question. And I probably should have told you this ahead of time, but yeah, I didn't. That's what I'm so I'm just going to kind of throw it on you. But kind of knowing where you are now in your career, what, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad right out of medical school? Mm, uh, thanks for not telling me before, I Karen. I totally should have said that when we were chatting beforehand. <laughs> I apologize. Scare the British person. Um, I think if I was to talk to a younger version of me, I'd probably say you don't have to say yes to everything. Go for quality over quantity um, because I think at times I took on so many things that I mentioned it was detrimental to relationships, to family, et cetera, like that. And you do have to have a good work-life balance. And I think I've, well, maybe I'm slowly getting the hang of it, but certainly everything that comes along when you're a junior looks like a good opportunity, okay? And so I think that's where if you have that mentor, you run it by them and they'll have made mistakes and you can learn from their mistakes. So it would be a case of, them saying, this is great, but maybe you've already got three or four things like this that are on your plate. Why don't you get those done and then go back to this person or say, can we postpone this for a few months? And I guess maybe I'm sneaking in two things, get a mentor. I didn't get one early enough. Um, and it's just been invaluable. I've got a chap called Michael McDesey. And if you don't know him, Google him. He's just a genuinely fantastic person. Uh, and we meet up in person every two weeks all through the year and talk on the phone at other times. And sometimes it's just to talk about my life as well but I think you know it's so important I talk not always about injuries just about how I've communicated things and you know he's he's honest enough to honest enough to say Liam that was rubbish and sometimes I need that uh 
So maybe I've answered that well enough. Yeah, no, it's a great answer. Thanks so much. So now if people want to find out more about you or if maybe they have questions and we'll put a lot of this in the show notes as well so people can head over there and just do a one-click thing, but where can people find you? Uh, at my house in Melbourne. No, um, where can I don't know if find? you want to. I don't know if you want to put that information <laughs> out there. I was thinking more like on Twitter, Twitter. or a website yeah. or. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm not sure they'll want to find me, but uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is, and it can go in your blurb, is Liam underscore West. And I don't mind you putting my email in there. Um, so that if people uh, would like to chat, very happy to do so. Either through those two mediums are probably the easiest. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I think that, you know, you gave a lot of great advice for young clinicians. And again, kind of what you said in the beginning, it's up to them to kind of take action on it. So thanks so much. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on, Karen. All right. And everybody, thank you so much for listening and tuning in, subscribing, downloading, and have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.